Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Stories Season 3. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 4, Beauty and the Beasts. In particular, I'll cover how this episode has a very subtle midpoint, which might be because there's a bit of a question about which is the main plot here and what is the subplot. I'll also talk about the challenges with the metaphor to abusive relationships, point of view questions, and whether this episode plays entirely fair with the audience, and the use of voiceover. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Beauty and the Beasts was written by Marty Noxon and directed by James Whitmore Jr. We start with a voiceover from Buffy. She is reading aloud from Jack London's Call of the Wild, but we don't see Buffy. We see a forest. The point of view seems to be that of someone or something running. The voiceover fades into Willow reading the same book. She is in the library and she is reading to Oz in his werewolf state. He is locked in the book cage. So now we get our opening conflict, that small amount of conflict that draws us into the story. The moment Willow says rabbit as part of the text, the werewolf lunges and hits the front of the cage, the bars. Xander walks in and says he is reporting for duty. He's yawning. Willow tells him she's reading Oz, The Call of the Wild, to help soothe him. and she says it'll help keep Xander awake. Xander looks at it and says, aren't we reading the Cliff Notes version of that for English? And Willow says, some of us are. She has put towels on the front of the cage for privacy. Uh, Xander jokes that he's not worried, but Willow says it's for her. She's not ready for Oz full Monty. She is just getting used to half Monty. And Xander, maybe only half joking, says half Monty, which half? And she says, wouldn't you like to know? She also tells Xander that Oz is more manageable tonight than tomorrow night with the full moon and mentions the third night. She also gives Xander a tranquilizer gun just in case he needs it. Xander, after she leaves, immediately just lies down, I think on a table with his head on the book, rather than trying to stay awake. So we got a lot of information here through humor that Willow is seeing Oz, that that's who this werewolf is, that they have someone watch him throughout each night, and that he turns into a wolf for three nights. We cut to Buffy and Faith patrolling in the graveyard. Faith asks Buffy about where the kids go parking and about her and Scott. Buffy says something about, oh, it's only been a few dates. It hasn't gone that far, but she really likes him. He's funny. But the best thing is he's not any sort of hell beast. 
Faith tells her that all men are beasts, and Buffy says, I was hoping not to get that cynical until I was at least 40. But Faith tells her that from Manimal to Mr. I Love the English Patient, however they act, all men are just in it for the chase. This sets up one of our episode themes about the beast within and the story question, who is the beast who is killing people in Sunnydale? This line of dialogue also sets up the next scene because when Faith says chase, the scene switches to a young guy running through the forest. He's being chased. We don't see who or what is chasing him because we are looking at him through the point of view of whoever is doing the chasing. Now we get our story spark or inciting incident that sets off our story. Usually this comes 10% through a story. Here it is right about there a little bit early because it's 3 minutes 49 seconds. Most of our episodes are 43 or 44 minutes long. At 3 minutes 49 seconds though, the creature chasing this guy growls and the guy screams as he is dragged towards the beast or towards the camera and we cut to the credits. When we come back, we're at Sunnydale High. Willow, Oz, and Buffy are walking up the stairs outside, and Willow says she doesn't think all men are in it for the chase. Scott calls to Buffy, and she pauses. He is with two friends, Pete and Debbie. Debbie asks Oz about whether he'll be in jazz band this year, and he says no, it's too much pressure. Not the music, but the marching, because jazz is improvisational, and everyone goes off in all directions and starts marching into the stands. They look slightly puzzled, and Willow says he's just being Oz. And Oz says, pretty much full time. Debbie is holding flowers. Pete got her. Pete says, oh, he bets Scott gives Buffy flowers all the time. Scott then looks a bit awkward, hesitates, and says, we're not about the flowers. And then he says, are we? Did I miss flowers? This is a really nice way to emphasize that they are early in their relationship and to show them having a bit of fun with each other because Buffy assures him that they are pre-posy. She seems happy and relaxed, which is really nice after are three episodes mostly of angst for Buffy. But she has to leave. She needs to go see the guidance counselor, Mr. Platt, to convince him she's Little Miss Stable so she can stay in school. So this came out of last episode where Principal Snyder put all these conditions on Buffy returning to school. Debbie says that she sees Platt too. She doesn't want to, but she's flunking senior bio and the teacher says she has success issues. Oz tells her he aced senior bio. He's happy to give her his notes. We then switch to the library. We're about eight minutes, 15 seconds in. Giles tells Xander that they need to check all the exits, make sure there was no way out. Xander says, don't worry, he was there all night. Willow and Oz enter. Giles sees them and says, right, no need to panic. Oz says, just a thought, poker, not your game. When Willow says, what's the big deal? Giles tells them there is probably not a deal, but if there were, it would involve murder. A student, Jeff Walken or Walker, was found in the woods dead and he was mauled. And it's someone Oz knew. Giles says, much as I hate to say it, it could be the work of, of, and Oz says, me. Willow counters, wolf you, not you, you. 
But Xander insists it's not wolf you or you you because the room was secured, the book cage was locked, and the window was, and he walks into the cage and looks up and says, open. But then he tells them not to worry. He rested his eyes now and then, but, and Giles asks exactly how long did he rest his eyes? Xander claims it was not long and he never heard Oz leave and Oz was right there when he, and Giles says, or yells, woke up. Willow tries to comfort Oz, who looks shaken. We switch to the guidance counselor's office, but we don't see Platt right away. Buffy walks in, and he has his back to her. His chair has kind of a high back. So all we see is that, and his arm sticking out, he is holding a cigarette that is burning. I don't know if they really allowed cigarette smoking in high school at the time, so this would have been late 90s. I do know when I went to college, which was a little bit earlier than than that I had my last two years at Columbia College in Chicago and smoking was allowed. I had more than one instructor who smoked during class, including a four-hour fiction writing class, and smoke really irritates me. I don't mean irritates me emotionally. It, I react to it. My throat, um, my nose makes me feel terrible. Probably true for a lot of people. Anyway, both teachers and students were allowed to smoke in the classes, so it, it was really not fun for those of us who were sensitive to it. I doubt that was the case in high schools in the late 90s, but maybe at any rate, I think the cigarette is supposed to also give us a hint that this counselor is a little bit unorthodox before he even speaks. So Buffy says, as she's looking at his chair, that she'll look at his ink blots, she'll cooperate, do whatever she has to, but she doesn't want to talk about her childhood and she doesn't want to be friends. I'm guessing she's anticipating that he might be one of these faculty members who wants to be her buddy. But he turns around and he says, they're not going to be friends. She's a little surprised, but he says she has friends, he hopes, which is good. Friends agree with you. They tell you what you want to hear. But what he's offering is a trained, not too crazy professional who will always give his honest opinion. And Buffy says, not too crazy. That's your credentials. Platt tells her that any person who claims to be totally sane is lying or not very bright. Everyone has demons. And Buffy quietly says, gotta say I'm with you on that. And this is where we see this shift in demeanor with Scott and her friends and with Faith the night before. She seemed relatively happy. Her manner was kind of light and fun, more like Buffy as we originally met her, if not quite as bright or enthusiastic but generally light and happy. And here, she's much more serious, and her tone is a bit more muted when she says that. Gotta say, I'm with you on that. Platt tells her that demons can be fought, people can change, and he says, you can change. He asks why she ran away. She tries to deflect, but he wants her to tell the story. So finally, she tells him an abbreviated and somewhat metaphorical way, although it is accurate. She says she was dating someone. It ended badly. She and her mom were fighting. She freaked out, and she ran. Platt wants to hear more about this bad ending guy. And Buffy says, he was my first... I loved him, and then he, and Platt says, changed. And Buffy says, yeah. Platt goes on, he got mean, and Buffy says, yes. 
And then Platt says, and you didn't stop loving him. Buffy doesn't respond. She just looks at him. So this is another theme that will play out in this episode, and it does fit with the first one. And it is what happens when you love someone who changes or becomes dangerous, or you realize that person is dangerous. Platt tells Buffy there's no shame in losing yourself in love but you can't stay lost. Sooner or later, you have to get back to yourself. And Buffy asks, and if you can't? Platt responds, if you can't, then love becomes your master and you're just its dog. Buffy's question, and if you can't, tells us so much about where she is. Because while she is genuinely seeming to like Scott, She is afraid that she can't get past what happened with Angel. She can't let go. This is the first time I can remember in Buffy where watching an episode as a viewer who has seen the previous episodes is a significantly different experience than for a new viewer. It would always be somewhat different, but here... The longtime viewer knows something vital that a new viewer does not, which is that Angel is back. We not only know uh, that Buffy is talking about Angel and that she had to kill him, we know that last episode he was returned to Earth. And it adds so much weight to Buffy saying, and if you can't, because it is not just an emotional issue of letting go, which is what she is thinking now or of getting over this trauma. It's what's going to happen when Buffy finds out Angel is back. And also, what is the deal with Angel? Very interesting that while we will get things woven in to catch us up or remind us about what happened before, you would lose a lot of that emotional impact if you had not continued to watch in order. And that was somewhat new at the time. I believe that the X-Files as well was on and it had continuing storylines. So probably you were seeing that develop there too but most shows as I've talked about were really episodic and you would get a little more out of watching them in order or watching all the episodes but rarely was there something with this kind of emotional impact that the episode itself didn't tell you. We go back to the library. Buffy comes in. Oz and Willow are sitting on the steps looking sad and Cordelia just says Oz ate someone last night. Willow says he did not. Xander rambles on about, no, Oz doesn't eat anyone. He just has werewolf fun with them. And Oz tries to cut it off and says, maybe there's another werewolf roaming the woods. Giles agrees that's possible. And he tells Buffy to patrol and the others to check out the morgue and that he will ask Faith to watch Oz tonight. Oz, who normally is so calm, says, oh, you're having a slayer watch me? Good, we're not overreacting. This is one of the few times we see Oz rattled. And he was rattled before this, the idea that someone was killed, that he might have done it. And it makes it so strong because normally he is so low key. He doesn't get upset over things. He has great perspective. Seeing him this disturbed tells us so much and underscores what's happening here. 
Oz tells Willow he needs to bail. He says it's kind of dramatic, I know. And she's okay with that, except that it's almost sunset. So he sighs and gets in the cage, and he tells her when she comes up to the front of it to try to reassure him or comfort him, he says, get away from the cage, that he's going to change soon. And he says, get away from me. We're a little bit past 25% through the episode. Normally here, we see the plot turn, I think of as the one quarter twist because of where it generally appears in a story. And it comes from outside the protagonist and spins the story in a new direction. It is a little bit past the quarter point here, which does often happen in Buffy and in other television episodes. We are 13 minutes, 16 seconds in. Buffy is patrolling in the woods and there is a flash of some creature. She sees it in her peripheral vision and then it runs at her and runs into her and knocks her over. She falls, looks after the creature and he turns and it's Angel. He's not in vamp face but his lips are bloody and he's breathing hard and we cut to a commercial. This turns the story because now it is not about just who or what is killing people but is it Angel. Buffy and Angel fight. They're punching one another and he is kind of wild and his punch is flailing. He is definitely not himself and she finally knocks him out. I do think it's kind of funny because he's he's bare chested but he's wearing pants. Obviously a convention for TV because as feral as we'll see that he is. Oh when did he stop to put pants on? Where did he find them? I know it's the mansion but he would have have to look around for those pants and put them on but we'll just go with it. it it is television at the morgue Cordelia Willow and Xander are checking out this body Cordelia and Xander are really grossed out Xander notes uh, this guy is pretty barf worthy Willow though seems very calm she is getting samples from under the nails she can't say yet if Oz is cleared it could be anything that did this and Cordelia says anything with big sharp teeth and vicious Xander cuts her off and says, can you go back to the car and wait? Willow appears so calm. She says she just has to get a couple hairs that might have come from the perpetrator. Then the second she's done, she passes out. And Xander comments that it doesn't look good for Oz. This guy was ripped apart by a big wild animal. We cut to Buffy. She is opening this trunk. She sweeps a bunch of dolls off of it. A nod to Drusilla, who kept her dolls there. And she gets out handcuffs and a long chain and handcuffs Angel and the chain goes up to the ceiling. He is struggling with her. He's breathing hard. Angel lunges toward her and she cringes. He is making these guttural sounds, almost growling. We cut to Oz as the werewolf growling in the cage. Faith is in the library. She has a Walkman on and is dancing to the music. So her ears are covered and she doesn't hear Buffy as Buffy comes up behind her. Buffy taps her shoulder and Faith swings around and punches Buffy, then apologizes. While rubbing her jaw, 
Buffy says it's okay. She came to give Faith the night off. As soon as Faith is gone, Buffy pulls out a card catalog drawer. We fade to the next morning. Oz is himself again, naked, asleep in the cage. Giles comes in carrying his cup of tea and unlocks the cage. He sees Buffy asleep in a chair holding books, other books all around her. Even from the first time I saw this, I noticed he doesn't yell at her for sleeping. It seems a little bit unfair then that he was so mad at Xander. I know that it was because at the moment they had just found out someone was killed. They just saw the window open. And maybe the assumption is that as the Slayer, Buffy would have just woken up if she heard something. But still, I was just talking about in the patron Q&A about how part of why as viewers and readers we buy fantastical elements in the story is that the logic of the internal logic of the story works and the emotional experience works. We're true to these characters we love, we're absorbed in their experience, and in this I was a bit distracted because it it did seem like Giles would be concerned that she fell asleep. He comments on the books, which include exploring demon dimensions and something about a kafala. Buffy tells Giles or asks him, what if she had a dream about Angel? And it brought up some questions. She tells him she dreamed Angel came back. He sympathizes because after Jenny was killed, he dreamed that he saved Jenny. But Buffy says it was very vivid and could it happen? Giles tells her there's no record of anyone returning from the demon dimension once the gate is closed. That if Angel did get back, Giles can't say what he would be like. It's a dimension of brutal torment. Time moves quite differently there and Buffy says she remembers. This and the reference to Jenny also are reminders to viewers who already know what happened. They remind them that Angel killed Jenny, that Buffy was in a demon dimension. It's a good example of if you are writing a series of novels, how to throw in a couple things to remind your longtime readers what happened, but not to give everything away if a new reader wants to go back. And it also throws in there these little hints for new readers who might think, oh, well, that's interesting. I want to know what that story is. So done, done really well here. Giles confirms that yes, if Angel had come back, it would be after hundreds of years of torture. And he says it would take someone of extraordinary will and character to survive that and retain any semblance of self. Most likely he'd be a monster. And Buffy says, a lost cause. Giles tells her there are two types of monsters, the type that can be redeemed and wants to be, and the second is devoid of humanity, can't respond to reason or love. That was about 21 minutes in. We are a little bit early for our episode midpoint. So I'll get to where I think the midpoint plot turn occurs, but it hit me this this could be it. Normally at the 
midpoint, we will see either a reversal, a significant reversal for the protagonist or the protagonist committing in full to the quest. And sometimes we see both. It could be this as a reversal, this idea of a monster that cannot be redeemed, which we can see in Buffy's face is devastating to her and is her fear about Angel, particularly given what she saw earlier. This raises another question that I also flagged at the beginning, which is what is the main plot here? The possible midpoints, and we'll get to another soon, suggest the main plot is did Angel do this? It's Buffy finding out Angel's back and so forth, rather than the plot of who is killing people in Sunnydale. Granted, those two are related, but the who is killing people in Sunnydale revolves more around Oz and Willow in did Oz do this or not? So which is the plot? Which is the subplot? Thank you again for your support, both through listening and those who support on Patreon. If you would like to become a patron and get access to bonus content, you can do that through the link in the show notes. If you would like to support the show some other way, please tell a friend about the show, post a review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts, or share the show episodes on social media. It will help the show continue to grow and help other people who love Buffy and love stories find out about it. Willow now comes into the library. She has donuts and she's speaking quickly and talks about how she watched them make the donuts since 4 a.m. and how cool it was and says she couldn't sleep and asks Buffy, how come you're the wakey girl? I mean, this time it's not your boyfriend who's the cold-blooded. Buffy nods and Oz has walked over behind Willow and Willow spins around. She doesn't finish the cold-blooded line. She turns to him and says, jelly donut? Buffy is very insistent when asking Willow what she found. Who was the killer? A vampire? A werewolf? Was the victim bit? But Willow says it's not conclusive and we can see how upset Buffy is. We switch to the lunchroom. Scott calls to Buffy. He sees what's on her tray and says he can't back her on that lunch. Nutritional demerits. She's got a mound of something and then jello and she says her stomach doesn't want hard food but there's fruit in it pointing to the jello and Scott says those are marshmallows. Buffy tells him he's sitting with Debbie and Pete that she didn't sleep well. Debbie advises her not to tell Mr. Platt because he'll make her start a dream journal. Pete makes some jokes about that and Debbie says that Platt is a quack. But Buffy counters that she kind of liked him. Debbie says, yeah, he's kind of funny, but she goes on, sometimes I don't like the things he says. Buffy concedes, he definitely marches to the beat of his own drummer. Actually, I think he makes his own drums. Scott is supportive about therapy, and then he tells her she looks amazing, especially considering she's not feeling well. In this sort of disconnected, rambling way, Buffy says that's really sweet and she wishes she didn't have to but she does and she gets up and leaves so this is about 23 and a half minutes in so we are a bit beyond the midpoint here and yet I see this 
as the midpoint commitment because while it is subtle, Buffy is committing here. She is leaving lunch with Scott and his friends, sort of the normal life she had wanted, the light, happy Buffy we saw earlier. And instead, she goes to check on Angel. The reason I have a question and feel it's very subtle is you could argue Buffy isn't exactly throwing all into the quest but more reacting to the things that have been happening because it's I almost can't believe Buffy would do anything else when it's inconclusive who the killer was she saw Angel last night even though she chained him up she would want to go check on him otherwise though we don't really have a strong midpoint here and we don't get one in the is it Oz the werewolf plot after Buffy leaves Pete says check out Scotty liking the manic depressive chick Another thing I like with this scene is it weaves in more clues for later that don't seem significant now. Uh, Debbie's comment about not liking the things that Platt said, that she's seeing him, he's having her do a dream journal, Pete making fun of that, and even though it's funny at the time he talks about oh is that like a Barbie thing the dream journal this will come back later even Pete making fun of the manic depressive chick but it looks like Debbie and Pete are just there as foils for Scott because it's Buffy we suspect there's more because normally new characters are brought in to be either victims or villains but generally it is a good way to bring in information the viewer or reader will need, the pieces they will put together later, so that when they find out what's really happening, they won't feel blindsided, but you're not necessarily giving very much away. So these are, are pretty subtle clues here. Nearly 24 minutes in, Buffy is at the mansion. Angel is still there in chains. She says his name, asks if he understands her. He doesn't respond. She approaches tentatively, touches his shoulder, and he lunges at her and growls, and she runs out. At school, in the courtyard, in the sun, Debbie and Pete are walking, and he is pulling her towards this door, and she's saying, no, no, she'll be late for class, but he says she'll be late but happy, and he's kissing her. The point of view here is unclear. It's a little bit like what we saw in that early scene where the guy was attacked. It's a bit of a narrow frame to the shot. The camera shivers a little. We know we are in the point of view of a particular creature or person as opposed to the more just overall camera point of view that we see most of the episode in and most Buffy episodes from. When the episode finishes, my question is, are we playing fair with the audience here? Because it's broad daylight, so it can't be Angel, it can't be the werewolf, it can't be Pete, who we're going to have questions about because he's being observed. So whose point of view is this? Is this here just to mislead us and throw us off, to keep us away from the idea of it could be Pete? who up to now we have no reason to suspect. Maybe it is Oz, because we'll see a bit later Oz interacting with Debbie, but if it is supposed to be Oz, he stands out there for a long time waiting for Debbie and Pete to come out. So this door, it turns out, leads into what 
appears to be a sort of very large janitorial closet or maybe shop class. It's not really clear. And it's a little odd that as the episode goes on, it almost seems like no one goes in there but Pete and Debbie because we'll find out that Pete makes and stores some sort of formula or potion there. I can headcanon that maybe this is another example of most adults in Sunnydale High just don't much care what's going on. Debbie seems to be trying to distract Pete and pull him away from a part of the shop. He notices this empty jar with a neon green residue of liquid in the bottom, and he asks her what's going on. She didn't drink it, did she? We switch to Buffy. She has gone into Platt's office. She says something like, Buffy Summers reporting for sanity. When she walks in, he has his back to her and his hand is out with the cigarette in it. And she tells him, don't turn around. She just needs to tell him something. And this story will probably convince him she's loony bin material, but she can't talk to anyone else. So I kind of believe that she doesn't find it odd that Platt doesn't turn around. I also find it true to her character and believable that she might find it easier to talk if he doesn't look at her. She says she can't tell Willow or Giles or anyone they'd freak out on her or do something. So presumably something to Angel. This scene to me, though it comes much beyond the midpoint, feels more like the commitment. Buffy throwing all in and being willing to tell this counselor the truth when she has no idea how he'll react or what he'll do tells us the deep stress she's in and really is a commitment and throwing caution to the wind. Buffy goes on, she needs help, she needs to talk to someone, she is so scared and she says, it's this guy, he, she walks nearer to Platt and she sees that his cigarette is burned down to ash and she whispers, he's come back. And the camera pans around so we can see Platt sitting in his chair and his face is mauled. Maybe one eye, it looks like it's gone. There's just all this blood. And this too feels a bit like a midpoint reversal. Another person has been killed, but not just a person. It is someone that Buffy had gone to and felt she could talk to and now he's gone. And this calls back to when Angel was killing the people who mattered to Buffy and tormenting her friends. Angel would have no way of knowing about Platt, but I can understand why Buffy might not think that through in the moment. The other small thing that distracts me a bit here is the oddity of Platt still holding that cigarette. If an animal mauled him, a vampire a werewolf, whatever it was, there's no way that he would still be sitting there holding the cigarette, which suggests that he was posed and doesn't fit either a werewolf or Angel as we've seen him. We're back at that room. Pete becomes angry at Debbie when she admits to throwing out that formula. She wanted to help him. She doesn't like what it does to him. She says, you know how you get. But he tells her he does it all for her to be the man she wants him to be, but he doesn't need it anymore. And he breaks all the beakers. She can pour out everything and it wouldn't help. And he punches her and tells her that all it takes is you and your stupid grating voice and he jerks his head around and he turns into this kind of beast it is still definitely him but his face is distorted and all veiny and I think his arms are as well so he's scary looking and it's an obvious Jekyll and Hyde reference 
and now he accuses Debbie of flirting with other guys, asks if her shrink taught her that to share with everyone and communicate, and then he says, guess what? Even he's not going to listen to your pathetic ramblings anymore. I'm all you've got now. Debbie is on the floor, she's cowering, she's crying, and he sees what he has done, turns back into himself, but of course blames her and says, you know you shouldn't make me mad, and he is distraught, and she is holding him and comforting him. So very obvious uh, parallels and metaphors to abusive relationships. The, the language is straight out of that, the, you know, you shouldn't make me mad, and suspecting her of flirting with other guys and telling her he does it all for her and he's all she's got. So we're almost 30 minutes in. We're back at the library and Giles tells the others that this creature is especially brutal, but the coroner confirmed that Platt was killed during the day. And Willow says yes and raises her arm and then she lowers it and says more quietly, it's horrible, horrible. Buffy says it's okay. They're all glad Oz is off the hook. And Giles says where is Oz? It's 5.30. The sun's about to set and he's should be here. So we switch to the courtyard and Oz is there. He's he's just leaving and Debbie runs out, sees him, apologizes for being late. Oz gives her his notes and he notices she has her hair hanging over one eye but you can see a little bit of it and that it's blackened and he asks if she's okay and Debbie responds what oh yeah I'm I'm such a klutz I uh and Oz says fell down hit your I. Debbie claims it was a doorknob. Oz tells her if she wants to talk, but she thanks him for the notes and leaves. And I think he touches her, her shoulder or her arm or something when he asks if she wants to talk. Again, we get that distant point of view we had before, but it is Pete this time because we then see him watch Oz walk off. Back at the library, they talk about what sort of killer they're looking for. Giles says a depraved, sadistic animal. Oz walks in behind him at that moment and says, present. Hey, I may be a cold-blooded jelly donut, but my timing is impeccable. Willow hurries over to him and assures him that he's not. It's a kill-in-the-day monster. I see all of this as the three-quarter turn. Really, the kill-in-the-day part when Giles reveals that is the turn because now we know both it's not Oz and it's not Angel. So the question becomes, who is doing this? And for Buffy, now what will she do about Angel? Before, she had to be contemplating that she would probably have to kill him again, but now it is a different and more complicated question. And as an audience, we have that same question about Angel, and it's not so much who did it, because we are pretty sure now that we know, but it is how will this play out. Oz looks relieved and then they start talking about the two victims and what do they have in common. Oz says that Debbie and Jeff are both in jazz band together and they used to horse around and Faith says they were screwing and Oz, we get a great line, he says, I don't think so, but he hit her music comp book once. Buffy points out that Debbie was seeing Platt and clearly had no love for him, and Oz mentions the black eye. So they start talking about could it be Debbie as the killer? Maybe she got the black eye because Platt fought back. But Buffy says no, Platt was dead in an instant. He didn't even drop his cigarette. So I'll take it back. I 
guess this is somewhat pivotal to the plot because it's why Buffy rules out Debbie. She moves on to say maybe it's boyfriend Pete doling out the punishment. They split up duties. Uh, Giles says Faith is with him. Willow and Buffy will go investigate. And Oz says, and I'll lock myself in a cage. At 33 minutes in, Buffy and Willow are in the girls' locker room. Debbie is at the mirror putting makeup over her black eye or trying to. And Buffy says, you know what works for that? Don't get hit. Buffy then asks her what's going on because she bets Debbie knows. Debbie claims not to know anything. And Buffy says normally if she wants to keep a secret, okay, but people are dying here. Debbie tells them it's not Pete's fault, it's hers. Pete is not himself. He does what he does because he loves her too much. So another direct reference to abusive relationships. And Willow says, but weren't Platt and Jeff killed by an animal? Buffy says to Debbie, Pete's not like other guys, is he, Debbie? We cut to Angel. He's struggling with his chains. That hook on the ceiling that is holding the chain up breaks. So he's got the handcuffs on. The chain still runs between them, but he's got a lot of leeway there, and he starts running. In the locker room, Buffy asks Debbie where Pete is. When she claims not to know, Buffy tells her she's lying. Debbie says, what if I am? What are you going to do about it? And Willow says, wrong question. Buffy grabs Debbie, she pulls her in front of a mirror. Here is where I found the episode disturbing, including the first time I watched it. Buffy and the episode seem to blame Debbie for Pete's behavior, which feels like exactly, well, it is what Pete is doing. And I understand Buffy is trying to get information. I might not find that so troubling if we were specifically told that Faith and Giles were going to look for Pete, especially if there was some reason why they might know where he is better than Buffy and Willow do. And Buffy is questioning Debbie because Debbie is most likely to know where Pete is. But because we don't get that sense of, okay, it's a hunt for Pete, it feels like we're just going to target Debbie, that gives me that sense of uh, it's somehow it's Debbie's fault. Also, that moment when Willow says, wrong question, it suggests that she thinks Buffy's going to use violence against Debbie, the victim of violence. Now, Buffy doesn't do that, so I guess that was there, I don't know, to raise a second of suspense to add some feel of menace but I am just very uncomfortable with even that suggestion that Buffy would do that. So as they are looking in the mirror and we see Debbie's eye and Buffy says anybody who really loved you couldn't do this to you and the mirror makes it pretty clear if we didn't already get it from the dialogue that Buffy is also talking to herself both for the past when Angel was killing people and she at first didn't kill him and because when she says that thing to Debbie about keeping a secret, Buffy now is keeping a secret about Angel. And she has told Platt she can't tell anyone because she's afraid what they'll do. And then Debbie echoes that as well because she asks, will they take Pete away someplace? She could never do that to him. She's his everything. This is Buffy's fear. And Buffy says, so while you two live out your grim fairy tale, two people are dead. Who's going to be next? 
We cut to the library. Pete has come in there to confront Oz, who's in the cage. Pete accuses Oz of putting the moves on Debbie, and Oz says, we talked, yeah, but it was move-free. And he tries to tell him what the cage is for, and that it's for when the sun sets. And Pete says, you won't be alive to see it. Oz says, I'm serious. Something's going to happen that you probably won't believe. But then Pete's head jerks side to side and he changes into that beast. And Oz says, or you might. And we cut. When we're back from the commercial, Pete yanks Oz out of the cage and throws him on the floor. Back in the locker room, Debbie is sitting on a bench, kind of chanting, he does love me, he does love me. Buffy says, this is useless, she has to go find Pete. And Willow says, I think we broke her. And Buffy responds, I think she was broken before this. I see why Buffy needed to try to get information from Debbie, but her lack of empathy also is very striking here. In previous episodes, a lot of times Buffy's power is not only in her physical strength, it is in her ability to understand and empathize, and that is so missing here. Perhaps because Buffy is being hard on herself, but this points to one of the challenges with metaphor. If we just take this story as Debbie and Pete are this reflection of Angel and Buffy and what are the similarities and differences and why are the distinctions key? Are they valid? Because it is done as a metaphor to abusive relationships, we bring in some troubling aspects from real life and also what I find to be troubling attitudes. And one of those is one that when I was in law school, I took feminist jurisprudence. One of the things the professor commented on, she said, why do we have a battered woman syndrome and not a battering man syndrome? That so encompasses the cultural attitude, particularly at the time, about relationship abuse issues. And this episode seems to internalize that, perhaps because that just was what was the general societal view, or at least a prevalent view, that somehow it was about, oh, we have to fix these women and not what do we do about men with these anger issues and these aggression issues. Back at the library, Pete is beating up Oz and then the sun has gone down, presumably the moon has risen, and Oz says, time's up rules change. Now we get to the climax. It's somewhat of a a long climax. There's a lot that plays out here because remember our climax is where everything comes to a head. All of these opposing forces clash. So you could argue the climax starts a bit later and I'll point out when that is. But if we see the Oz werewolf plot being at least equal to the Buffy angel issues, I think it starts here. We're 36 minutes, 50 seconds in and Oz changes changes into the werewolf and he and Pete fight. Buffy hears the screaming, runs toward the library. Um, So does pretty much everybody. Debbie too. Buffy grabs the tranquilizer gun, but Debbie pushes her and the shot goes to Giles instead, which is a fun moment because he says bloody priceless and falls on the ground. Buffy gives Faith the gun and says, you get the wolf. And Buffy runs after Pete. He goes out through a high up window after he rounds a corner where Buffy can't see. 
see. And then we see Pete still as this beast in that hidden room. Debbie is sitting there on the floor and she runs over to him, hugs him, asks if he's all right and says, she almost shot you. Did you see? I stopped her. She tells Pete he has to leave. She knows, meaning Buffy. And he asks how. Did Debbie tell her? Did she run her mouth? Debbie says she just knew. And of course he blames her. He tells her she's a waste of space and starts punching her. In the hallway again, Buffy rounds the corner. She sees the blood high up by this window and she climbs through it. We're about 39 and a half minutes in. She finds the room and Debbie's dead body is there on the floor. Pete attacks her from behind. So we could see this as as starting the climax because this is the confrontation between Buffy and Pete and in a moment Angel. But because Oz is so pivotal, I do think it started at that earlier moment. Buffy and Pete fight. We switch to the werewolf on top of Faith, growling and snapping. Wulu grabs the wolf's tail, yelling get off of her, and she runs. The werewolf dashes after Willow and she is yelling, get the gun, get the gun. Faith grabs the gun, chases and shoots the werewolf who falls to the floor. Pete and Buffy are fighting and he's yelling at her you're all the same you're all the same he throws her she's on the floor about to get up when the door bursts open angel comes in he goes after pete punches him they fight angel vamps out and we see them face to face pete with his veiny distorted face angel and vamp face lots of similarities in how they look In the end, Angel, from behind, throws that chain around Pete's neck. So it's the chain between the handcuffs and strangles him to death. Pete falls to the ground. So note again, as in previous seasons, Buffy does not kill a human being. It is Angel who does it. If Buffy finished this fight herself, she probably would have tried to incapacitate Pete. Angel kills him. And so we are safe from Pete, and we have not had Buffy have to do that. Also, note before, Buffy, though she does fight Pete, Oz, as the werewolf, fights him first. So we also have that monster to monster, and relatively little of Buffy fighting someone who is, yes, he has made himself into a monster, but is still a human being. Pete is dead, and we shift to the falling action where we tie up loose ends. We're at 40 minutes, 36 seconds in, though we could see this as the continuation of the climax, or even as the actual climax of Buffy's story with Angel. What will she do about Angel? Who is he? What is he like as he has come back? What kind of monster is he? He is still in vamp face and he moves toward her slowly and for a moment we think that he might attack her but he is looking at her and his face changes back to human and he says Buffy. And he falls to his knees and wraps his arm around her legs and presses his face to her knees. And Buffy's expression, her mouth drops open when he says Buffy. Her eyes are wide. And we know she can't believe that he recognizes her. And he says Buffy again, just clinging to her. And one tear runs down her face. And we see so much in Sarah Michelle Gellar's expression. Everything is there because what is going to happen now? The scene changes to our friends walking in the courtyard in the sun the next day. 
They're talking about all the rumors around school about what happened to Pete or what he did. Somebody said he had eight iced cafe mochas and lost it. Buffy says that's better than the estrogen theory that he took all his mother's birth control pills and went crazy. I'm sure it is no accident that in this episode about this guy deliberately turning himself into a monster, we have that somebody's theory is it was too much estrogen. So I may be being a little hard on the writers by saying that they're buying into that idea of the battered woman rather than the battering man syndrome. And maybe they were purposefully trying to make a point with the overall story that perhaps just isn't quite coming through to me or that just ended up with some mixed messages. Willow gives us the true story. Mr. Science was doing a Jekyll Hyde deal, trying to become super macho because he was afraid Debbie would leave him. But eventually he didn't need that formula to become that way. And Cordelia says, so it was a real killing. He wasn't under the influence of anything. And Buffy confirms just himself. One loose end that is not tied up is who do the police think killed Pete? Because we saw last season when Buffy found Kendra, they right away assumed she was a murderer. If she was the one who found Debbie and Pete, wouldn't they be suspecting her? Did she take off? But then who who do they think strangled Pete? It, it seems pretty obvious it wasn't Debbie. Buffy sees Scott sitting alone and she goes to talk to him. He says he was friends with Pete and Debbie since before they all started school and says, you never really know what's going on inside somebody, do you? And he goes on to say that you think you know if you care about them, but you never really do. And Buffy just looks sad. We fade the scene into the woods and we get more voiceover from Buffy reading the call of the wild. And we shift the scene to seeing Angel sleeping on the floor. He's twitching and flinching in his sleep. And Buffy is sitting in the moonlight and watching him. And the voiceover, I'll just include part of it. And the strain of the primitive remained alive and active. There are a couple more lines, and the episode ends with, Yet he retained his wildness and wiliness, and from the depths of the forest, the call still sounded. We end with a close-up on Buffy's face. This episode shows us again, we have seen how Joss Whedon will give a character what they most want and then yank it away, and also how he will give the character what she wants most, but in this terrible way where it almost makes it worse, which we saw in Becoming Part 2, where yes, Angel comes back, but it only makes it harder for Buffy because she still has to kill him. So here... It's somewhat similar. We give Buffy Angel back, but in this kind of terrible way because he seems to be feral. And yes, I think the answer to what kind of monster is Angel, this suggests that maybe he can be redeemed, though he is still wild and dangerous. He did not do violence to Buffy. He came in and protected her and then became himself again when he he looked at Buffy. I remain troubled by the abuse parallels partly because Debbie ends up dead 
Maybe this is meant as a cautionary tale and it raises our concerns about Buffy for the season with Angel back. There was that moment where we thought he was going to attack her as well and we don't know what is coming for the future. This episode does do a great job of raising those story questions. It completes the story and yet it leaves these questions open. One thing I did find online I thought was really interesting was this blog post it's called I Ron Eek, and I'll put a link in the show notes, where he talks about Beauty and the Beast and suggests the question of the episode is, as Platt says, if we all have demons, what do we do with them? Do we cage them as Oz does? Do we use them to fight other demons as Angel does? Do we indulge and heighten them as Pete does? So I like that as a theme of the episode and perhaps it does go more to where the writers were aiming than to do these abusive relationship parallels. That is it for this episode other than foreshadowing and spoilers. If you're not sticking around for that, Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will come back next Monday. We'll be looking at Homecoming when Buffy runs for Homecoming Queen against Cordelia, and Mr. Trick sets up the equivalent of a reality show. And we're back for spoilers and foreshadowing. The line about love becomes your master and you're its dog could be a theme for season three. We have Buffy and Angel and her hiding from her friends that Angel is still alive. We also have Faith's love for the mayor as her father figure and how that affects who she is, what she chooses to do. Oh, and to go back to Buffy, the things that Buffy does when she tries to kill Faith to save Angel. Could you argue that is Buffy being Love's dog? Is that foreshadowed here? I had forgotten how well Faith and Buffy get along for a couple episodes and it was really nice to see them in the graveyard patrolling. Buffy is sharing how she feels about Scott and they're joking around and you get that sense of closeness which very nicely sets up both why it is so important to Buffy to keep trying to get through to Faith, to keep connecting with her and also makes it harder when they are at odds. Oz is withdrawal from Willow when he thinks he might be a killer, the way he acts when he goes in the cage and tells her get away from the cage. This foreshadows season four when Oz realizes he can't control the wolf and he just shuts Willow out. He doesn't tell her what's happening. He makes a decision to leave not just without talking it through with her, without even telling her until everything is decided and he completely backs away from her. When that happened in season four, I of course was surprised. I think all of the viewers expected Oz would be staying on. But now that I watch this episode, I see how well that was foreshadowed and how much that fits with Oz's character. He deals with things so well to a certain point, but this is the thing that he cannot deal with. And it's it's like he needs to push Willow away in order to manage his feelings and make a decision. Scott saying you never know what's going on inside someone. As they're talking, he has no idea what's going on inside Buffy 
next week, she has no idea what's going on with him because he breaks up with her. Finally, the biggest foreshadowing, of course, is Buffy telling Platt that she can't tell her friends about Angel. She's afraid of what they'll do. And I don't think I ever picked up on that before. I got that she wasn't ready to tell them, but I hadn't realized how much right from the beginning that was her fear, what they would do that they would try to get rid of him. So that is it for the foreshadowing and spoilers. Thank you again for listening. And I do hope you will come back next week for Homecoming when, as I noted, Buffy runs for Homecoming Queen against Cordelia and Scott breaks up with Buffy. You can tweet me, Lisa M. Lily, hashtag Buffy Story, or email me, Lisa at LisaLily.com. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2020. All rights reserved.